to the book of Hebrews we go again. This is a deep well worthy of being drawn from many, many times. Fill the cup with the water of the word, the living word, that we might live thereby. Hebrews chapter 8, please follow along as I begin reading in verse 6, verse 6. But now, he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be mercy, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old? is ready to vanish away. Shall we pray together? Lord God in heaven, who rules here on earth, guide our hearts by your sovereign plan to your word. Let your declaration, your oath of promise, this new covenant, burn deep into our hearts press it into our minds guide us O thou great Jehovah though we be pilgrims in a foreign land lead us to you this rock that is higher than I so that we might attain to the stability and maturity brought through your new covenant promise. Help us this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This message is so vital that it is probably the reason why it was so hard for all of us to get here today. How do I know it was hard for many of you to get here today? Because it was for me. Sometimes we might say, well, it's potluck Sunday, it's a little harder to get here with all the food in hand, and that would be true. Other times we can just tell something's up. Usually we can only feel it in ourselves, and we think it's only of ourselves, and whether it's physical ailments, physical difficulties, whether it's spiritual things going on, just a scatter brain sort of thing in your mind, which of course never happens to me, but I've heard some of you say it might happen to you. Of course it happens to all of us. We wonder why. I think it's because this is the quintessential covenant. And if you miss it, you miss the foundation and your walk with Christ may be undermined without it. This is the best. And so we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against things in high places. Therefore put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand thereby 
So I call on you all who are hearing me today, gird up the loins of your mind, ready yourself, and be ready for good things. This isn't a hard teaching. This is so great. It's so grand. It's only hard because you can't do anything to get it. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough to be blessed by it. You can only believe in it. Period. The end. Which is the reason why this section starts with the idea of behold. Hebrews 8, 8. Behold. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Whenever the Lord says behold, it's like saying in the old English, Lo, for there it is. Pay attention, listen. Behold, something is happening. Behold, a child is born to you this day. Behold, a covenant is given to you this day. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We have just found out that there was a faulty covenant. A faulty covenant with faulty people trying to keep a faulty covenant. Not that God made a covenant that was bad, but God made a covenant purposefully that would find the faults of man. Verse 8 begins, because finding fault with them, with Israel, with those who are trying to keep the law, he hearkens us to this message. He says to us, listen, don't miss it. I will make a new covenant. The writer chooses something that I wish we could see in the Greek, but we can't because it's English. But you can because you've been studying with me the book of Hebrews, and we found again and again the English word perfect. We found again and again the English word complete. The idea of fulfillment. Here the Greek, God says, I will make. Soon teleo, a compound word that brings us back to that perfect. Bringing to completion, bringing to fulfillment, bringing to maturity. That we have studied in teleos, teleon, teleao. Not to be missed. I will make, I will complete, I will finalize a new covenant. Even better, we can say it this way. God is saying, I will consummate a new testament. I will consummate a new promise, a new covenant. I will bring it to its goal, its finality. All that I have said before and all that I have promised before comes com into its completion, into its perfection through this covenant that will be mediated by a new high priest, Christ Jesus the Lord. This is the finishing feature, the mark. Such is the finality of this that I bring you to where this word is used elsewhere in Scripture in just a few places because I could not resist. Mark 13, we read these words. This is when Jesus went up on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. He had just finished saying, you see these buildings, not one stone shall be left upon another 
that shall not be thrown down. Verse 3 of Mark 13, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Now pay attention. Tell us, they said, When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be soon teleo, fulfilled, brought to completion. When will that be? Speaking of the end of all things and the beginning of a kingdom. In Romans 9, I pick up the word again, and this is a specific passage in verse in chapters 9, 10, and 11, speaking, Paul is speaking of Israel, of how they are now, and where they will be later, and that God has not given up on them though now they have been darkened in their understanding. Romans 9, verse 28. Let me pick up the reading in 27, the full quote of Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, listen, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. Finished. The new covenant is the finish of the covenants. The consummation of a new testament. The Lord is announcing a final complete covenant that represents the consummation of all promises finished, brought to a completion. When Jesus Christ, that great high priest, as we've already studied, entered the presence behind the veil with his shed blood, became mediator of a better covenant and better promises that it was established upon. Verse 6, Hebrews 8 but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator, listen again, of a better covenant that was established on better promises. What came before in the Mosaic covenant? What came before in the law? This is better. This is higher. This is complete. The new covenant is revealed. It is revealed as a list of the faultless promises of God that even the fallibility of man cannot thwart. Let me read that again. I kept this propositional statement small, succinct, which is not my normal way. The new covenant is revealed as a list of of the faultless promises of God that even the fallibility of man cannot thwart, cannot undo, as man did with the Mosaic Covenant in breaking it from its very inception and for hundreds of years broken. They were faulty. This will bring about a faultless a faultless condition. I want to look at first and only this morning the faultless responsibilities found. The faultless responsibilities found. We've been studying covenants. There's a few kinds of them. The Mosaic Covenant was a two-party covenant in which God, as the Lord, obligated himself to certain things. And the people were obligated to keep certain things if they wished the blessings from the Lord. And in failing to keep those things that they were to do, they would receive cursings from the Lord. Two parties were obligated. God to bless if they obeyed and to curse if they did not, and the people to be blessed if they obeyed 
They'll be cursed if they did not. This is a better covenant. Because this covenant is a single party covenant. There are responsibilities on one side only. And that side is on the side of God, the Lord himself. He is taking full responsibility for all the good that will come from the new covenant that will be mediated, that will be administered by his great high priest, Jesus Christ. There is nothing for man to do. Let me see that quieter in case you will listen more carefully. There is nothing for you to do. God takes all these responsibility on himself. The evil of man, the sin of man, the weakness of man, the wants of man is to want to do something better than someone else so that we can be seen as better than others and accepted by God and ushered into his kingdom as the better and the best and the new covenant has nothing to do with you, if that is you. For the only difficulty of the new covenant is that it is humbling. Because it admits, there's nothing I can do to keep this covenant. The faultless responsibilities of this covenant are found, and they're found to be with God, very God alone, in this very first statement that he makes. He says, for this is the covenant that, listen, I will make. Who's making the covenant? God is making this covenant. Who is obligating himself in this covenant? God alone is heaping upon himself the full responsibilities of the blessings of this promise. This is the promise of grace. It's the promise of grace. He said that Jesus was a mediator of a better covenant established on better promises, and this is the promise of grace. Grace from God. Not deserved favor, unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor from God, I will make this. For a hundred years, Israel and anyone who bound themselves to Israel realized the keeping of the Mosaic law was an impossibility and left them condemned. The law killed, as we studied last week, when you found out you should not covet, as Paul says, then you started coveting with all the fervor of the covetous. The law kills. This gives grace. I will make, God says. And in taking the full responsibility on himself, we are then looking to God as the guarantor. And why should we trust him? Are you more trustworthy than God? I hope your answer to that was no. But we live too often like the answer is yes. I will trust me. I will trust I. Who's got two thumbs and is very dependable? This guy. To which we find out there's a big lie being proffered by this guy with two thumbs pointing at himself. Liar, liar. Pants on fire. Why is this day difficult? Because all you're trying has to be left at the door. All of your earning must be left behind. And all of your dependence placed firmly on God alone in this covenant. And I believe that it is only this God that can keep this promise. Only the great I am of the Bible is able to keep these great I wills which we will study in the new covenant. Only the great I am is able to make the I wills a reality in life, 
in time, in space. Only he gives a guarantee. Only he can bring about final fulfillment. It is in Genesis that God reveals himself. He reveals himself certainly to Abraham and or certainly to Adam and Adam falls but then to Abraham in the grace of God he reaches out to one man of insignificance and he calls this man and he talks to this man and he covenants with this man Abram and in Genesis 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am. He appeared to him and said, I am Almighty God. I am the self-existent, all-powerful God. He declares, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. I am. In Exodus, Moses cast away from his princely position in Egypt, a herder of sheep, called then when seeing this burning bush, he goes up on the mountain to see what is this thing what is this miracle thing on high, a bush that is burning and is not consumed? And in Exodus 3, verse 6, God says, moreover, I am the God of your father. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Reading further down in Exodus 3, verse 13, Then Moses said to God, he had just been given a task, he said, Go, go to Pharaoh, go to my people Israel, go back to Egypt, this place you fear to go, go back to where my people are in bondage, you are the one I choose to send to them and to speak to Pharaoh and to tell them, let my people go. And in the fear of a man, Moses says, knowing he goes to confront the greatest superpower on the earth, knowing intimately the might and power of Egypt and all that Pharaoh can bring to sway, Moses said to God in verse 13, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And what did God say to Moses? Did God say, oh, I'm stronger than Pharaoh. Oh, I have more military might than Pharaoh. Oh, I can do greater miracles than Pharaoh. Tell them that. Tell them I'm the romping, stomping God and there's nobody that can stand against me. No. He said this. Simplicity. Enormity. Quickly and vast beyond eternity. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God is who God is. He self exists beyond all that you can imagine or think. His creation does not bind him. His creation does not define him. 
His creation glorifies him, but it does not define him. He defines himself, I am the being from whence come all beings. I am. It is Jesus who startled, who shocked the Pharisees and the scribes when they were asking who he was. He defined himself in this way and committed in their minds the ultimate blasphemy, but what he had done was give the ultimate truth. Jesus said to them, John 8, 58, most assuredly, that means without a doubt, I say to you, before Abraham was what? I am. Abraham had lived and had died and had been gone hundreds of years. And Jesus just said before Abraham even existed, I am, I live, I existed as God, I am God. If you just trace the I am's in just the book of John alone, you'll be overwhelmed by the power of those statements. But I give to you John 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And what should you do with that? He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Did you say, did you see, did you see all that there? I am the way, the truth, and the life. What's your responsibility? Believe it. Nothing else. And you'll have life. Christianity is just too much for the pride of man. We would rather go back to the law of Moses and say, look how we keep these statutes and these ordinances and these washings and these sacrifices. Look how we do it. How it tries to insert itself even in the church of Jesus Christ today, undermining the new covenant. I am promise. Believe in me and thou shalt be saved. I am God. If this message can be muffled, if this message can be held down, if this message can be replaced, then people will go to hell unbelieving. And even believers will be emasculated in their Christianity. They will be made cripples in their Christianity. For they will start being self-dependent once again and fail from their own faults. The weight of them will be too great. They'll be looking at themselves and miss the great I am. Only the great I am can make the great I wills a reality. Is this not a better covenant? Is this not a better promise of grace that I am and he will make a new covenant? The second I will of today that comes from the great I am, letter B in your notes, I will put. I will put. Verse 10, Hebrews 8 for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. I will put my laws in their mind. Now many of you have dreamed of this scheme. Many of you have desired on the night before an exam, ill-studied, your life frittered away in front of television sets, uh, doing different fun things, talking on the phone, texting away. In my day, we didn't have texting, but we would have if we had the chance. 
knowing before you laid your head down on the pillow at night that a test was coming and there was a hope, there was a myth, there was a legend that if you put your book underneath the pillow at night and slept on it somehow miraculously, the truth, the knowledge would seep upwards. I think my pillow was too thick. I should have done away with the pillow and slept on the book. At least then, being a knucklehead, I would have had a hard head to boot. It worked not. But this is the study program God is laying out. The great I am says in the great I will, I will put my laws in their mind. Woohoo! This is the best. This is better. Isn't it? Why would you want something less? Because then you could do it yourself and impress everyone with your knowledge of the law. I think that's called being a Pharisee. See, there's something troubling about this that I just read, though. Pastor, you've bolstered our confidence in the great I am. You've said there is a great I will. And this first great I will all of a sudden is niggling away in your minds, is it not? He's making a covenant with Israel and Judah. Remember, that's to whom this was given. But many of you have walked with Christ for a while. You've sat in church for a while. You've heard me, myself, even say you're new covenant believers now. So what's wrong with my mind? If he's going to put the laws in my mind, what's wrong with mine? Some of you out there are saying, I don't know, Pastor, we thought you'd be better at this than that. We're on an equal plane, brothers and sisters. And these real questions must really be asked and really be answered here in church. Here is a new covenant. Here is a promise. But there's something troubling about all of this. If and indeed it applies even to us Gentiles in the church today, if it applies to us as well as to Israel and Judah, what are we going to do with our lack of perfection? What are we going to do with our lack of maturity? What are the Hebrews even going to do when this very author has said to them, by now you should be teachers, but I have need again to teach you the first principles. If this new covenant's in force, how come you don't just have it in your mind? How come? I have three questions. I could have done more, but some of you would like to eat lunch sometime. Three questions. Three questions that come to those who lack, it seems, in the law being in our minds. First question. I ponder, is it a case when we read this, when we're studying this text in Hebrews, is it a case of the already and not yet principle? of prophecy and promise that we have found in reading the prophets? In other words, as I've taught you hermeneutically, the near, but not here. As Jesus said, as he walked on the earth, he said, the kingdom of heaven is what? Near unto you. He did not say the kingdom of heaven is here. He said, because I'm the king of the kingdom and I'm here for now, it's near unto you. Turn and believe, but it's not here yet. There is, if you will, a foretaste, a foreshadowing. Is that what this is? That's a question. Could we gain just a little clarity by a few verses? By the way, conclusions aren't coming yet. They're coming along. And I think the conclusions we're going to find as we study. John 6.45, a verse after this question. It is written in the prophets, 
says Jesus himself, and they shall be taught by God. And they shall be taught by God, so said the prophets. And then he said this, therefore, since the prophets said they shall be taught by God himself, who's the teacher? God. Listen, therefore, everyone, listen, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, said Jesus. Is there an answer there? Let me move on. In Romans 11, a passage in Romans that deals specifically with Israel, Paul's desire for them all to be saved, yet in the present, these people to whom new covenant is promised, Remember, the new covenant wasn't promised to you first. It was promised to Israel. We are the wild branch grafted in to unbelieving Israel that will one day be grafted back in. I'm pulling on the reins of my own desire to go down that road farther. But to lead you to Romans 11, this promise... To Israel. Romans 11, 7. What then? Paul asks. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. But the elect have obtained it. Listen. And the rest were blinded. So of Israel. That's all of Israel. Those whom God has chosen, elect, have obtained this promise. But the rest are blinded from it. Verse 8, just as it is written, this means we're going back to prophetic words, God has given them a spirit of stupor, them being Israel, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. So when we throw up our hands and say, why can't they see their own Messiah? You actually know the answer to that. God is judicially blinding them, meaning it's the right thing for him to do because they were faulty and broke the Mosaic Covenant and are reaping the curses thereof for a time. For a time. To this very day, Paul says. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. What is this stumbling block? What is this table? It is the law that they think they're keeping without keeping it. They're failing, they're faulty, they're incomplete, and the law was never meant to bring them to that complete condition of guiltlessness before God and full everlasting forgiveness. It was temporary. It became a snare, a trap, a stumbling block to them. Let their eyes be darkened, says David, so that they do not see and bow down their backs always. That's the not yet. There isn't already. Whoever God teaches comes. And of Israel, even when Jesus was there, not all Israel came, did they? But let's say this about the Gentiles. Have all the Gentiles come to Jesus? No, they have not. But the elect have. And that's why we share the gospel. Because fruition isn't yet. But God is still teaching. Question two. Question two. What do we do about this? I will put my laws in their minds when there seems to be so much failing. There seems to be so much in my mind, even as a believer in the new covenant promise, that should be there that's not. I ask the question, the second question, is it that we should balance this giving of the new covenant? Should balance this with God's sanctifying work in us 
as in this very book, God did a sanctifying work in Christ. We remind ourselves again of this feature of this book and of the person of Jesus in his humanity that he walked completely and totally as a man walks and he demonstrated complete dependence upon God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, yet God taught him as a man. And we find as we look back again in chapter 2 and verse 10, I'll start it in verse 9, but we see Jesus, this is emphasizing his humanity in chapter 2 of Hebrews, but we see Jesus as a man, this is how, who was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone Listen now, pay attention, for it was fitting, it was the right thing, it was the fulfilling thing to do for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory, zero in now, don't miss, to make the author of their salvation perfect, complete, teleao, through sufferings. Even Jesus, who by and large was taught by God, learned to follow God completely through sufferings to fulfill the purpose of God. And then it comes to us, verse 11, for both he who sanctifies God, Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, new covenant believers, are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. We are being sanctified a process. Should we balance this I will put with the process of him putting it in our minds through suffering? Through sanctification that is indeed suffering? Third question, three. Third question. Is it also maybe part of what we learn or will learn from a further study of Hebrews? Is it not over yet? Is this placed here because he's going to explain these questions as we go along? What do we say to each of these questions? I say to each of these questions, yes, yes, and yes. And what we need to do is pay attention to the rest of the book of Hebrews to understand why the I will put my laws in their mind aren't all the way done yet. A foretaste, if you will allow me, in the very next chapter that we shall study, chapter 9 of Hebrews, Verse 28, listen. So, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who, to those who, is this you? To those to, who eagerly wait for him. That means you believe he's coming back. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. The second coming. Why? Apart from sin. For salvation. Wait a minute. Just wait a minute. I thought he saved us coming the first time. What's this other salvation? Apart from sin, sin the first time, why did he come? To deal with sin. To deal with Israel's sin, Judah's sin, Gentile's sin. The sin of all who would ever believe, he died once. But the law ain't quite in your mind yet, is it? Not all the way. Kind of near. But not here. 
for final salvation, which is also known as the third step of sanctification, and it's an act of God. It's called glorification. He returns to glorify. The flesh falls away. The sin that so easily ensnares you, gone. The word of God in your mind. It's enough of a commercial. I'm moving on. The third I will. The great I am is able to do the great I wills. To write his law upon the minds of his people. And then he says he also will write them on their hearts and write them on their hearts. The I will still applies. I will write them on their hearts. I'll put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts. This is the promise of the transformed heart. The promise of the transformed heart. What is the problem with the world today, I say? We look around, we discover, we see. They say there's a great divide in America. And they say it's between one party and another. One viewpoint and another. But I say to you, there's a great divide in our state. There's a great divide in our churches, there's a great divide in our families. Have you not noticed? There's a great divide because of sin. The problem isn't conservative or liberal. The problem is a heart problem. That men are sinners, therefore they sin. And we sin against one another. Saved and unsaved alike. And it is worse when the saved sin against another, having the indwelling Holy Spirit and the ability to know God's word and to even follow it by the Spirit and not the flesh. Yet there it is. Is the great I am such that he transforms the hearts? And how will it be? You see, the Mosaic law that was a faulty law because a faulty people could not change the heart. Even the very priests of Aaron, the very first two that were to take over after Aaron, profaned God's worship by deciding that the recipe that God had so carefully dictated for the incense that should be brought to him in the holy place didn't matter. And they brought in profane fire, their own recipe. Who cares? We're doing it. You want incense? Here it is. And God killed them dead. They failed. And the failings continued from there. What man needs, what Israel needs, what Judah needs, what every human needs is radical heart surgery. And from what I hear, heart surgery is radical. I like the biological sciences. I love anatomy. I like physiology. But it is my understanding of both of these areas that any biological creature such as ourselves that has its heart removed dies. They die. Life is in the blood, says the word of God. The heart pumps the blood to the body. Without this, you die. So when someone says, I'm going to take your heart out and give you a new one, it's radical. And in the world of man, we do can get a form of new hearts, right? There's the hearts that you're actually not brand new. You're like borrowing a used model. You realize that, right? Somebody else has used it. And now they'll see if it fits in you. 
So it's a used heart. But still like the other hearts. Then there's the mechanical hearts. These are hearts made by men. You want faith. <laughs> you know how many cars you buy that don't work right? You know, okay, doc, this is the heart you're going to give me, and men made this, right? I'd want to know which guy made it. Who's the guy that did this work? You know, I don't want sloppy Joe, you know. I want the guy who's really, you know, meticulous. And that's the work of man, and it's still frightening. It's a miracle in many ways, but it's not a true miracle. This is the true miracle. This is the great I am saying I will write my laws on their hearts. On their hearts. What was the problem with Israel? Again and again and again, it was hard hearts. In Hebrews, we've forgotten. It's been some months since we studied this. Hebrews 3. Verse 7, the writer says to Israel, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you'll hear his voice. Verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and they tried me to see. They doubted me is what it's really saying. Though they saw my works for 40 years, they continued to doubt me. They continued to test me. Their hearts were hard. They did not believe that the great I am would deliver them. They kept saying to Moses, have you brought us out here to kill us? That is a declaration of no faith. So if you stand right now and say in your heart, God can't save me. I'm dead and going to hell. Guess what? You have no faith. You have a hard heart. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Again, verse 14 and 15 of Hebrews 3. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. That's faith. While it is said, today if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Again in chapter 4 and verse 7, again he designates a certain day in David. Today, after such a long time, and it has been said, today if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hard hearts is a people problem. It's an Israel problem. It's a Gentile problem. It's a bad problem. And only the great I am, through these great I wills, I will put my law in their mind. I will write it on their hearts. Can it be relieved? And in the greatest form of transforming wordage, this verbiage comes to us from Ezekiel in the midst of the hard-hearted people who had been thrown out of their country, he sits in Babylon by the river Kibar off the Euphrates, and God then says this in the midst of their punishment. Ezekiel eleven seventeen. 17. Ezekiel is commanded, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you. See the I will? I will gather you from the peoples. Assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel. Why do so many in Christendom doubt these words? Try to reinterpret these words and undermine the great I am and his declarations of I will. He's going to gather Israel from the peoples. He's going to put them in the land. He will. Verse 18. And they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. They're going to clean it up. Verse 19. How are they going to do this? Then I will give them one heart. One heart, I will put a new spirit within them. And listen to this, and take the stony heart out of their flesh. I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. 
Hard-heartedness. You know what the problem with people is? They got hard hearts. And hard-hearted people act in hard ways, don't they? We prove our unsaved nature. We, we show it before Christ that we have a hard heart because we don't like, we don't love, we don't appreciate, we don't return. We're selfish, selfish, selfish. He says, I will give them one heart. A single unified heart. Can you imagine the peace on earth and goodwill to men if we all had the same heart, the same focus of our lives? I will put a new spirit within them. I will take the stony heart out of their flesh. I will give them a heart of flesh. That, what's the purpose of it? That they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. Why? Because they will want to. They'll do them because they want to do them. They'll have the right heart. They'll have the fleshy heart. He'll write his laws upon them. They'll do his judgment and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Hearts of stone can't be repaired. Hearts of stone can't be repaired. They can only be totally and completely replaced. This is a better promise. And the foreshadowing is with us. Why do you even want to come to church on Sunday? Some of you say, I don't. I'm being made to come here. Well, that's a sign to you. You have no faith. You have a hard heart. You need to be saved from that by faith in this promise. And then you will want to. Even when you don't want to, you'll want to, right? Sometimes you're at home, you're struggling with the want-tos and don't-want-tos. On the flesh on the one side, it says, I'm weak, but the Spirit is willing. And we know the Spirit is one when we're here. Or when we love our neighbor as ourselves, when our neighbor isn't lovable, we know, whoo, something, something got a hold on me. Something's changed. Ezekiel's surgery has been done. Finally, I will be. Finally, I will be this morning. This isn't the end of the new covenant. This is just the end of what I can talk about today because it's so grand. And I will be their God, verse 10 finishes. And I will be their God. Well, why put that there, Pastor? Number one, it's in the text. Number two, it's another I will in the text. Fits my sermon outline. Number three, it's vitally important. And that's the main reason. God is declaring in and of himself taking on full responsibility that he will be Israel's God. That he will be Judah's God. That he will be the God of all people under this covenant to Israel and Judah. I will be their God. Ownership is involved here. That's another thing sinful men with hard hearts don't like. You are not your own. Jesus said, through Paul, you're bought with a price. What price? The price of Jesus. Dying on the cross in your place. You're not your own. You're God's. I will be their God. And they'll like it. That's the thing, isn't it? And God is God. He's always God. He's everybody's God. There's no other God but Him. But men don't like it. Men don't want it. Far better if we make a God for ourselves and our own laws that when we keep them, then we can tell people we're keeping our own laws. Look how good we are. Our God likes us. And if our God doesn't like us well enough, we'll change our laws for our God. And that way, we're still right, even when we're wrong. But God's a holy God. He's a possessive God. The earth is mine, he says. The heavens are mine. Everything that's created is mine. The problem is you don't want me. But I will be your God. 
in the military, they used to do this to us. It was, it was good for us, I, I assume. They take us for training. It's going to be difficult. I say, you're going to do this, and you will like it. It's going to be difficult, and you will like it. My particular basic training, when someone had really messed up and we were trying to push Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, a few feet more down in elevation via push-ups, they trained us to say this, we like it, we love it, we want more of it. I am convinced many, including myself, were lying. We were doing the push-ups on the outside, and on the inside, we were saying, I hate his guts, which might have been the nicest thing that was said in that group. I make a joke out of this, but that's what men are saying to God every day of the week. It's only heinous when Christians say it with their new heart, with their new mind, with the Spirit dwelling in them. I will be their God. Deuteronomy Ask for Israel to hear. Deuteronomy 6, it's called the Shema. Because Shema in Hebrew means listen. It means hear this. The Shema begins here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. I will be your God. In Ezekiel, after the hopeful promise of the reunification of the northern ten tribes and the two southern tribes of Israel, of Judah and Benjamin, when they all come back together like two sticks being welded back together as a single nation, this comes on the heels of that vision. Ezekiel 37, 24, David, God says, my servant shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes. I will write them on their minds, in their hearts. I will put them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, their children's children, forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Verse 26, such a conclusion. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God. I'll be with them. It's heaven on earth with God. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Listen, here's hope for you Gentiles. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Who are you trusting today, Christian? The great I am? Or the great yourself? I will make, he said. I will put, he said. I will write, he said. I will be, 
your God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds your hand has made, and when I even more, Lord, consider what you are making through your new covenant, Lord, we bow down. For it is high, we cannot attain it yet you are showing it to us and growing us in it. And we pray now by faith, O Lord God, that we would not harden our hearts, but that we would soften our hearts, be led by your Holy Spirit, that your words may be written on our hearts and minds, even through the things we suffer in sanctification. Lord, I beg today that you would teach someone here who has heard these words. Teach them, Lord, and give them a new heart. Birth them again, Lord, so that they might look at Jesus even for the first time today and say, I am a sinner. I've been depending upon myself. And I repent. I turn from that. I trust in the great I am. I want him to be my God through his son, Jesus Christ. I want the words in my mind. I want the statutes in my heart. I want to follow you. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved in the new covenant. This we pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.